the best salespeople I've ever worked with, they really take pride in the fact that it was them who tipped the balance, that fast forward a year or two, and that that person comes back and said, I got so much value from this transformation and I wouldn't have done it had you not given me your time. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Selling with Love podcast. Very, very excited here to talk about someone who has equal passion in sales and love and entrepreneurship. I'm really excited that Dan Priestley is going to be joining me here, who's a man that by the young age of 21 started his first company, really got to be one of the entrepreneurs of the year in 2022. His SaaS company, which is called Score App, recently got valued at 25 million pounds, not US dollar, that's even better. And the man has really been an expert at scaling companies, being an entrepreneur, working with so many salespeople in the process as well. And I'm very, very curious to dig more into his journey, understanding what do you need to know inside the mind of every person you do business with, whether that's as a client, as an employee, but really understanding what are the questions you need to answer behind the mind of everyone that comes across your path on your journey of building a business and scaling up your sales at the same time. I'm so excited to bring the man who is behind four best-selling books, including Key Persons of Influence, Entrepreneur Revolution, Oversubscribe, and 24 Assets. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me on the show. What a great honor. I love the topic. Yes. Well, even off camera, the first place you started with is like, I have a passion for sales. I have a passion for love. Usually people look at me weird when I combine the two. And so I'd be curious to know if that's been a combination you've played with before. Well, I wrote about it in the book, Entrepreneur Revolution. The very end of the book says that humans had an advantage with dexterity. So the first age was our hands in the agricultural age. And then we had an advantage with our intellect so that we had to become very cerebral. And then now that we've got artificial intelligence doing a lot of the cerebral work as we go forward, we have to actually get really good at love. So when I talk about at the end of that book, I say essentially the businesses that will work the best are the ones where people absolutely love working for the business. They love the customer. They love the experience that they create with people. That essentially it's very much, if you look at what advantage humans have over machines and robots and automation. It's to bring the love. It's to bring the passion. So yeah, big, big fan of that. That's something I've written about and enjoy talking about. Is this like a recent phenomenon? Like, did we all just get together at a mastermind and start embracing love, talking about it in books? Or is it just finally something we all knew kind of works and now we're like comfortable talking about it publicly? <laughs> I think it became a competitive advantage. So I wrote that book in 2012 and I really started to see that there was something to the idea of working with passion. So if you were to talk to my grandfather, he would not say, go and do something you're passionate about and go do something you'd love. He'd say, go do something with oil or plastics or manufacturing. He'd say, go and do steel smelting. He would advise you on something where your in intelligence could meet with a very highly leveraged endeavor. And ultimately, you'd be able to then do things that you love outside of work. Whereas if you were to talk to a very successful entrepreneur today, they'd say, combine your passion with leverage. Um, so, you know, and look, it's also a misunderstood concept because I also do believe that we can fall in love 
with things that, you know, like there are certain things that we can do for a customer and we can serve in such a way where we can say, actually, I really love doing this. I, I didn't start out necessarily loving it, but actually I've fallen in love with it. So we can actually cultivate it as well. I don't think it's purely reactionary. I think we can be deliberate in the way that we love and the, the way that we find things to love. Mm. I'm glad you kind of opened that caveat because, you know, the biggest faux pas, I would say, is just feeling like you need to be passionate in love with anything you do. And if it's not, you shouldn't be doing anything at all. And I find like, you know, in the journey of discovering love, you have to be doing something. And so I want to kind of go back in time because you founded your first company, like this is 21 years ago. Was love already kind of a value that you instilled in that company? Or is it something you nurtured throughout the times? So my first company, I really, I was broke. So I needed to start something that would financially perform really quickly. And that was probably the first major thing that I had to focus on. But I loved the idea of being an entrepreneur. I was a real freedom seeker or am a freedom seeker. I wanted something that could be done on my rules and my terms. And I wanted to be entrepreneurial. I didn't want to get a job at a big company. And yeah, so I started my first company when I was 21 years old. I'd had two years of really good mentoring, working in a fast growth startup from 19 to 21. And it was very fast growth business. So it went from zero to about 10 million of revenue in three years. So it was like incredibly fast growth. So basically I had this business doing a million a month in sales by the time I was 24. <laughs> it was a very fast start to business. Hold on. Like a lot of people can't even get their first clients. They're like struggling, right? And then you hear stories like, okay, you got 10 million in three years. That seems unrealistic. That seems impossible. I, you can't even wrap your head around that being a possibility. So I want to go into, I know we're talking about mindset of the client, but I want to go into mindset of you. Like, was there a plan? Were you like, yeah, we're projecting 10 million in three years? Or was there a huge element of luck? Like, what the hell happened? Bit of both. So what happened is that from 19 to 21, I had an amazing mentor. I was part of a fast growth team. We went from three people to 60 people in two years. And I was under the guidance of a really great experienced entrepreneur. And I had a hands-on experience of fast growth to start with. So, you know, it wasn't new to me. It wasn't a random idea. I'd already done zero to, I think we'd done 6 million in year two. So I'd done zero to 6 million with my mentor. And essentially I had a lot that I could copy and replicate. So when I left and started my own business, I did a lot of the things that we just did, you know, in the first company. And some of the things that we did is that we had something called a perfect repeatable week. So a perfect repeatable week is where you create a series of activities that lead to the kind of performance that you need to achieve in the business. So we measure something called laps, leads, appointments, presentations, and sales. So what we do is we work backwards. So, so in year one, I wanted to do a million of revenue. So roughly speaking, you need to be doing 25 grand weeks. So then you have to work out, okay, if we earn two and a half thousand per sale, then we're going to need to make 10 sales a week. If we convert one in three, we're going to need 30 appointments. If only half the people show up, we're going to you know, need 60 people who are booked. And then if we want to get enough leads to do that, we're probably going to need something like 300 leads a week coming through. So you can kind of extrapolate backwards. And then you work out what's the cost per lead. So, okay, if we can budget hundred bucks a lead. Okay. We're going to need to spend this on leads and then this many appointments will come through and then this many presentations will be delivered and this many sales come through. So we just kind of work backwards from our laps, leads, appointments, presentations, and sales. And we kind of build a pipeline that's going to deliver that. So what happened for me is I, I successfully built that pipeline in year one, where we got onto consistent 
25 grand weeks through our perfect repeatable weeks. And then we went from Brisbane to Sydney to Melbourne. So we tripled it. And then we took on a bigger client where we were earning $15,000 per sale that we would make. And basically it went up to 10 million. And that year, one of the strategies was to run introduction events. In fact, that was the core strategy. And that year I ended up doing 173 introduction events. So we ran a lot. And we were spending, I think from memory, we were spending something like 80000 a month on ads. So you have to be measurably comfortable spending 80000 in ads because you can anticipate the revenue that will come back. And in your case, like being a perfect week, I don't know if it was a one-week return on that ad spend or that probably was a little longer, but still you had that system that made you comfortable spending it because you could predict what was going to be happening on the other side, when the sale would happen, what are the conversion rates and what was kind of the average order value? So how did you ensure that you had something that was so valuable to sell that you knew you could actually transact it at a price point that would make the whole system make sense? Here's the thing about that particular business. My first business, so going back in time, 20 plus years, my first business was a performance marketing agency where we would take a proven established business that had taken its eye off the ball with sales and marketing. And then we would do the performance marketing on the front end and we would do the lead generation and the sales right through to sale, effectively to hand over to our client. And we had agreed an amount per sale that we could get as soon as we'd made that sale and then hand it over to them. The business model worked really, really well because we would typically work with clients who could pay us quickly so that we could get on to the making the next sale. And we didn't have to worry too much about client servicing. We didn't have to worry too much about cash flowing things. We just worked with clients that had a proven product. They'd totally taken their eye off the ball with sales. So I'll give you a classic example. One of our very first clients was financial planning. And some of these financial planners, they they end up getting quite big and then they become very pompous in the way that they communicate and they disconnect from what it's like to be a typical person who wants to set up a financial plan. So they run things like branded advertising. And you can see this, well, you could open up any newspaper and you'd see them uh, with these very boring, very dull branded ads that would definitely not perform. And we could see they're just wasting tons of money on these types of ads. And then you'd call the number and someone would take down your details and no one would get back to you. And so it was very easy for me to actually, what I would do is I'd just literally go through their sales pipeline and then I would get in touch with the most senior person there and say, look, here's here's what it's been like as an experience as a buyer. This is terrible. It's not going to work for you. You're just flushing money down the toilet. Let me take it over. So, so that's how that business worked. And then when we scaled right up, I went working with um, franchises. So a franchise fee is typically sixty dollars to $100,000, and we would take $15,000 off of a $60,000 franchise as our marketing fee. And we worked with a franchise that already had 100 franchisees, and we took them up to three or 400 franchisees. And essentially, they had really struggled to engage, and we were very, very good at getting those franchise sales made. Effectively, we were a front-end sales and marketing engine for businesses that it, like weren't very good at it. Most people kind of suck at sales and marketing, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what's going on? Like, Because you see so many agencies can actually do such a big leveraged play when you start working with established businesses that from an outside person that doesn't have a lens on sales and marketing, you assume things are just working and they know what they're doing. But like, 
the work that you do when you're so specialized in sales and marketing, the amount of difference you can make for these businesses is like huge. And like, it begs the question, like, are most people just horrible at understanding sales and marketing? As businesses get bigger, that definitely happens. So as someone who's built big businesses, even I take my eye off the ball with sales and marketing. So if you take most boardrooms, the most common people you'll find in boardrooms are people who have a finance background, maybe an operations background, but you'll mostly get people who previously were CFOs, COOs. Rarely do you get CMOs who are in the boardroom. So at a board level, a board is really about asset management. So they are there to manage the assets of the business. They're not there to sweat those assets. They don't think about how to sweat the assets. They think about building the balance sheet. And then a layer down, they think, oh, well, someone has to kind of sweat those assets. Can we get someone to do it? So think about almost a huge property portfolio, that if you own these beautiful big homes, these big assets, it's an afterthought about like renting them out and making sure that someone's renting them and paying their rent and all of that sort of stuff. They outsource that to an agency. What they're focused on is owning more homes. So in a business context, what the board is focused on is owning a bigger asset. And it's an afterthought as to how that asset gets monetized, typically, right? So that's the mindset of a senior person in a bigger company. And the bigger the business, the more that mindset prevails. In a small business, you're dealing with smoke and mirrors. You've got nothing. So it's all about sales and marketing, and you're just trying to magic something into, into existence. So it strikes you as very strange as an early stage entrepreneur to look at a big business and think, these guys are insane. Like, what are they doing? So I used to look at BMW ads and think, this is insane. Like, this is BMW running a completely pointless ad in the newspaper. No one's going to respond to this. There's no call to action. There's no special offer. There's no limited time thing. Like, this is just insanity. This is just flushing $30,000 down the drain. So I would look at that and just not understand it. But when you understand the mindset of the bigger business, they're thinking about building and protecting a brand asset as opposed to sweating that brand asset to make a sale. It's very different. Well, I'm glad we went through this arc because, you know, I kind of talked about how you have to get inside the mind of the customer was a bit of what we were speaking about. And it shows that one of the key things you did have is an understanding of this part of your customer, which allowed you to understand that you had an offer that was appealing to them, that brought them results. You understand what was the kind of root cause problem. And, you know, just your understanding of what you just explained shows that that was an important step that you had to have to build the businesses that you've built. And so when you're seeing a wave of entrepreneur, and it always seems to come in waves, I feel like we're in one now that there's a lot of people that want to get into entrepreneurship. And like I've mentioned, some struggle to make their first sale. And then we hear the story of you doing 10 million in three years. What are the kinds of activities that we should be thinking about if we want to get better at being inside the mind of these potential clients, if we're going to be starting in business? So let's talk about a couple of things. The first thing I would say is that everything's downstream from lead generation. So you can really only build a business if you can generate leads. And if you don't even have a good product or service, but you launch a waiting list and 500 people join the waiting list, you can categorically build a business off the back of that because if investors see that you've got 500 people on a waiting list, they'll invest. Um, if a salesperson sees that you've got 500 people who joined a waiting list, they'll jump on the phones and start making sales. And essentially everything can flow if you've got a lead generation strategy. If there's some particular way to generate leads, signals of interest, warm interest, 
you've got a business off the back of that. On the flip side, if you spend 10 years building the most amazing widget and it does whatever it does and it's the best in the world at it, if you can't get people to signal that they're interested in that, you don't have a business. So, you know, this first idea is that everything's downstream from lead generation. Okay, so let's actually get inside the mind of a customer, right? So let's talk about that. So the first thing to understand is something called the limbic system. The limbic system is the gatekeeper for the brain. And it's essentially like a bouncer that's standing on the door of a nightclub, refusing to let most things in. A great example of your limbic system functioning is you live in Bali, right? So you go into the Balinese market and the first week you're in Bali, people are just rushing up to you and saying, Mr. Mr., you know, come and buy this. And they grab you by the hand and they try and drag you to their stall and all of this stuff is going on. And your brain's like trying to make sense of it all. And like, you know, you're not sure what to filter in, what to filter out. Is this genuinely a good offer? Is it rude to ignore this person? All of those things are overwhelming. Fast forward a few months into the Balinese experience, someone grabs you by the hand and you just pull your hand back and your brain doesn't even think about it and you can walk through an incredibly busy market and just filter everything out. You don't even see it anymore. So you're walking through this busy market and someone's offering you watches and pens and silk things and this, that and the other t-shirts and your brain is just like, don't even see it, don't even recognize it, like the noise, the imagery, the visuals, I can just walk through comfortably and filter 99% of it out. Right, so that's the healthy limbic system. I bet you can relate to, to that. <laughs> well, although I don't relate specifically to that, but I would say that's probably closer to like the Chatuchak market in Thailand. And for those who've been, will know exactly. What I will say is the difference between someone who's first time in Bali and landing, and then there's all the people that are trying to get you into a taxi when you get off that airport. There's like so many. And then for me, it's like I'm beelining to either my Gojek or my Grab to book a car and sit in a lounge. And it's like, I don't even register it. But if you come in for the first time, you get overwhelmed. That would be a great example. And someone's grabbing your suitcase and you're like, yeah, yeah. And you're intimidated. <laughs> yeah. Do I let them? All that. So imagine that busy Balinese street and you're walking down this tourists everywhere. There's people everywhere. There's vendors everywhere. You're walking down this busy, busy Balinese street. And then you see someone that you went to high school with and they're a hundred meters up the road. And you're like, oh my goodness, I haven't seen that friend for forever. And you literally cut a line through and you go tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, how are you going? And suddenly they go, oh, wow, I didn't expect to see you here. And then you start talking. Now, think about what happened in that moment. What happened is that somehow, magically, your brain took in all the information that was in that street. And then it saw someone that you know, like, and trust. And it went, boom, I want to talk to that person. And you zeroed in on them. You put all your attention on them. And you went and had that great conversation with them. So what happened was that there's this gatekeeper called the limbic system that kept 99% of all that information out. But then it saw something that was relevant. And it just highlighted that information. It didn't just let that through. It actually stamped it with a big you know, neon sign and went, check this out. Look, there's your friend. So the first thing to understand is that Everyone that's out there in the world right now is bombarded with just nonstop information online and in real world and through their friendship networks and all of that sort of stuff. They're just getting an inhuman amount of data on their senses every single day that we were never built to process. And we're getting really good at filtering stuff just out. And the first trick with sales is can you get through? Can you even just get past that limbic system? Because that's the first filter. That's the hardest part just to be on people's radar. So you have to start by understanding how does that limbic system actually work and what gets through. 
So I can talk about what gets through if we want to go there. We turn this into a little bit of a masterclass, but it's very interesting to realize how tuned out we are when it comes to marketing today. And it seems there's always been like a different medium that gets exhausted time and time, but it's just like, even with the birth of AI right now, like, oh my God, it seems like a lot of these marketing and sales tactics are being maximized, but with no soul in it. So it's just more of that junk. It's almost like one of the mentalities that seems to have been unleashed with technology is like, oh, you know, going back to the Bali street example is like, well, there's a bunch of people screaming. What if I scream louder than everyone else and wear flashier colors? Maybe they'll be able to buy my product and service. Service. But quite frankly, that's just being more obnoxious. And so we have to kind of go back to the drawing board. So how the hell do you stand out to be that friend down the road? Mm. So the brain only lets a few things through. So it lets through anything that's a threat. So if something seems threatening, then you're going to notice that if someone's imposing. So if we look at the news media, their business model is showing up every single day as a threat. That's how they make their money. They want to find the most dangerous and threatening imagery that they can possibly show you, and they want to put that on the radar. So for most businesses, showing up as a threat is not necessarily something you can do, although you can actually highlight a potential threat within the industry or that's relevant to your product or service. So potentially you can highlight a threat. The next thing that we let through is anything that is very strange out of the ordinary. So in a Balinese context, if you saw someone dressed like they're a Wall Street banker in a three-piece suit walking down the street, you'd find that very strange and they would strike you. You'd be like, well, that's different. So you can be different or strange. Although for most businesses, that's not something you want to do. The third one is sexy. So if we see something that's very sexy, that gets through the limbic system. But for most businesses, they probably couldn't do it if they wanted to. You know, I, I I don't think I could show up as sexy if I really wanted to show up as sexy. Highly non-recommended for most listeners. <laughs> but even then for everybody, it's just so controversial too. <laughs> exactly. So the two things that actually do work the best is number one is free gifts. So the limbic system is very, very open to free gifts and it has to be packaged beautifully. It has to look like something that is of value. So if someone is handing out something of value for free and it looks like they're actually handing something that that would be packaged in such a way that it seems like it would, would have a value, a free gift is a very powerful way to get through the limbic system. And then the fifth one is highly familiar. So if in the first example I gave you was your friend from high school, that's someone who's already familiar to you. So the brain keeps track of how many times I've seen you, how much time we've spent together, how many positive interactions we've had. And there's a significant number called 7114, seven hours, 11 interactions, four locations. And once the brain hits 7114 with a person, they get filed into a new filing cabinet called a friend or an acquaintance. And essentially, they get a pass to go through the limbic system anytime they want to. So that familiar person gets to go straight through. So those are your options when it comes to getting past the limbic system. So I think using that system as well, you just start really understanding why the influencer economy really took off, right? Like that's really it because as you scale up social media and now, especially with short form content, you get to have these small touch points at high frequency. And if it's always genuinely good value, like we were talking about, you know, one of my clients you actually were aware of and that you have engaged with some of her mediums before, is that the big role of social media? Because I find, and I go, this, this is a very specific one, but I do have to ask for a friend. There's a lot of times you're playing social media and you're thinking we need to get to the sale. We need to really transact ASAP. But 
there's also this whole part, which is like, how do you even build on this familiarity to get the goodwill to be able to transact in the future? Do you play with that balance in any way? Mm. Well, the people who take off on social media is primarily people who are sexy. They get millions of followers very rapidly if they're at the very peak 1% of sexiness. And they can do that very rapidly because of that filter. People who show up and add huge amounts of value and they give, 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 that is a gift right? So they're giving. And then people who show up consistently day after day after day after day, which is the familiarity. You are seeing it play out exactly in social media environments. Once an influencer has demonstrated value and who shows up consistently, there becomes a point where people naturally want to signal intent. They want to signal interest in what you're doing. So the next thing is we need to have a bridge. We need to have a low risk, really easy way for someone to signal that they're interested in doing something. So when we want to get to the sale, we actually have to create what's called a signaling campaign, not a sales campaign. So people feel comfortable signaling intent much more than they feel comfortable committing to a sale. So if we think about committing to a sale, if I was going to buy a new guitar, I would have to feel 90% sure that I'm making a good decision before I part with my money. So I'd have to do a lot of research and I'd have to have shopped around and all of those sorts of things. If, however, I am familiar with a brand and they said, we're launching a new guitar in 2024, if you want all the information about it and you want access to the launch event and all of that sort of stuff, just join the waiting list. That probably requires 10% of my interest or commitment. So the threshold for signaled interest is very low compared to the threshold for a sale. So every sale starts with a signal. And what we have to do is get really good at signal collecting before we get good at sales. I find that's like one of the steps that might be overlooked and you're wondering why your aggressive sales campaign or direct to sales campaign might not be converting. And I have to go back to my time when I was at Mindvalley. I even got confused myself, you know, because we had this giant email list and we would run these webinar, which we call masterclasses. And even if you were already on the email list, we would actually send people over to a landing page to opt into a masterclass. And I think that was kind of a interpretation or a manifestation of what you're speaking about, which is getting people to indicate interest in that specific topic. And then guess what? We get to measure scale and bring in the results. I always had a part of me that was like, are we creating a friction point by introducing another landing page? But based on the model you're speaking about now, I can see the psychological effect of confirming your interest and indicating interest actually ends up being such a powerful part of the buying process. But this was like, I guess I got to date that to seven years ago. Are there some fundamental changes that are happening on the way that people are expected to be giving interest? Do you know, here in the UK, the most famous music festival here is called Glastonbury Festival. And out of 365 days of the year, how many days are you able to buy a ticket? And the answer is 36 minutes. So out of 365 days, there's a 36-minute window to get, get tickets. What can you do for the rest of the time? You can pre-register for your ticket. So what they do is they run a campaign all year round where people pre-register that they're interested in a ticket and 700,000 people pre-register. They then send an email to those 700,000 people saying, we have 130,000 tickets available and 700,000 people on the waiting list. And then they give you the time that the tickets go live. Everyone sits there hovering. I think they do it deliberately at about four o'clock in the morning just to get a commitment filter. Um, and they basically say it goes live at four o'clock in the morning, set an alarm, get up and buy your ticket. And you essentially get 
all the tickets sold out in about 30 minutes. It's really wild. They don't release the bands. They don't tell you anything about the concert. They tell you after you've bought the ticket who's going to be playing and all that sort of stuff. These guys have mastered that art and it's only gotten bigger and stronger since the digital revolution happened, especially in the last few years. Another great example has been Rolex. Rolex really switched their marketing about 10 years ago to promoting the waitlist. So you couldn't actually buy a Rolex. You could only join a waiting list. And the waiting list average time was about 18 months. So for 18 months, you're sitting on a waiting list and they're just sending you information that you can't buy yet. So they just give you a little update. Hey, just letting you know, we've got you on the waiting list. We haven't been able to get you a watch just yet. And then 18 months later, we've got one for you, but we can only hold it for you for three days. Boom, straight down. So <laughs> so these things are working better than ever if you do them right. But look, waiting lists are not the only signal collection campaign. So I'll give you a few others. So you've got a waiting list is a great one. Another one is an introduction event. So intro events are fabulous where people join to be part of an introduction audience and an introduction workshop. The next one would be a discussion group. So join a discussion before you buy. So let's say you want to run your first marathon. You might join the discussion around running a first marathon. Or let's say you want to lose weight, join the discussion group for losing weight. And then the fourth one, which has been a game changer for us, is online assessments, self-assessments. So self-assessments is where people answer 10 to 40 questions in order to self-assess something about themselves. And these things are off the scale. People just love quizzes that tell them something about themselves. So anything where they reveal a profile or a type, anything that reveals a readiness score, are you ready to run a first marathon, answer 10 questions and find out. Are you ready to launch your business? Answer 15 questions to find out. So anything that indicates readiness, anything that indicates a particular type, absolutely amazing. So those are four big signal collection campaigns that just work every time and they work better in a digital environment than ever before. Yeah, I think based on what you share right now, I guess there's a difference between a company that has found its product market fit and has scaled to a certain size that they can apply these methodologies in a very effective way. Like you're talking about that festival, obviously super credible, you know, festival with past experiences, lots of marketing assets. People talk about it very positively. You probably need to have those in place to create that buzz. Can I push back on that? Ooh, push back, please, please. Because <laughs> I'm thinking this is accessible to only a few. No, Jason, I work with a lot of early, early stage startups and we always launch with a waiting list. We always then follow through with an online assessment. So let's take an example where someone wants to create a brand new cybersecurity business, cybersecurity consulting to make sure people stay safe in an AI era. So rather than trying to set that whole business up, literally just, hey, we're launching a new cybersecurity service for this type of company, for fish and chip shops, and it's designed to keep fish and chip shops safe during an AI era. If you're a fish and chip shop and you want to be taking cybersecurity more seriously, join our waitlist. You don't need any setup costs. It's super simple. You just start the waitlist. Straight away, you've now got 60 people who have joined the waiting list. You can get on the phone, talk to them. I'm just curious. I'm building the product. Tell me what's the thing that you're looking for most. Tell me what you're afraid of. You know, give me some information. Do you want it in blue? Do you want it in red? Do you want it in purple? You know, have you got any opinions about like, you know, do you want small, medium or large? Are you thinking one grand, two grand, five grand? Right. So all of those things, you can start talking to people about the wait list. Let's say you wanted to build that same business and you're still putting it all together you could just launch a, a cybersecurity assessment. Is your business secure in an AI-driven world? 
and let's say 100 people fill in that online assessment, it's not saying that you've got the service to fix the problem, but it's helping them to diagnose that they have a problem. So like way early in the journey, you can be doing that. Let's say you're an expert in cybersecurity. You don't yet have a team or ability to scale up with clients, but let's say you just decide to run an intro event and you say, I'm going to do a 45-minute lunch and learn presentation on cybersecurity. Anyone who wants to come along, we'll talk about the seven biggest threats and how to solve them in 2024. Come along to the intro. Now, you may not be ready to launch the business, but having people showing up to that introduction presentation is a powerful first step. Maybe you start with an intro and then go to a waiting list. So you're building tension and that's powerful. Like building demand and supply tension before you even have a business, super powerful. I stand corrected. (laughs) Just for the record, I was going to say that all the methods except the waiting list were good for a small business, but you actually correct me that the waiting list is also good for the small business. And you know, one of the biggest things I advocate for is actually having conversations with humans, which I see you're speaking about as well. I think there's so much that gets created in a vacuum and you kind of spoke about it, you know, build that perfect widget for 10 years, but never put it in front of anybody makes you run with so many different assumptions. And here we are making sure that we're actually focused more on the mind of the potential customer that actually has shown that they have some interest that could potentially become a customer. What about the confusion that could come where you're optimizing for the wrong kind of customer? If you're starting to listen to every one. Is that something that you have a way of like filtering what is good suggestion versus just noise? So my filter is I break markets into three markets. The three markets that I look at is the mass market, the niche market, and the luxury market. And when I look at markets, I look at campaigns that we would run. So launch campaigns. So you could launch campaign to the mass market, which is a bad idea. It's oversaturated. It's very noisy. So you don't want to launch campaign to a, a mass market. And when I say launch campaign, like anything under 20 million of revenue is you're still in early days. So then there's niche markets. A niche market is any market where people are already in the top 20% of earners and they are passionate enough to join groups where they're putting their valuable time into a particular focus or interest. So these niche markets are extremely valuable if you can nail those two things. And then luxury market is in the top 1% of earners. And because their time is so valuable, they want to make shortcuts with their time and they're looking for the high status option. So they say, I don't want to shop around for a guitar. I just want to know what's the best one that's won the most awards and everyone uses and famous guitarists always buy. I'll just buy the one that's the most expensive and the most awarded and the one with the most heritage that's been around for the longest. And my shortcut assumption is that I'm getting value if I just do that. And value for them is saving time. So making that shortcut through status and heritage is a good saving for them because it saves them time in research. So those are the three markets that you can go for. When you're launching a new business, you should aim for a niche market. So avoid luxury and avoid mass market as a general rule. Yeah. So 100% agree with that. Although the pushback I always get, and I'd love to hear your take on this. I have conversations with people that are maybe at the very, very early stages. And it's like, well, I'm afraid of like, you know, niching down because what if somebody that's outside that niche comes to me? Am I going to like not work with them or am I going to scare them away if I'm like too specific? Do you err on the side of more specific than necessary or is there a sweet spot you look for? I love to remove the word niche and exchange it with campaign for. So if we were to say I'm niching for dentists, 
that feels like I'm putting my feet in cement and sticking myself in one spot that I can't move from. If I said I'm campaigning for dentists, that means that I'm going on the march to go after a particular type of customer and I'm going to put my messaging around them for that campaign and I'm going to really emphasize the features, advantages and benefits for that particular type of person. Now, while I'm out there campaigning for dentists, someone comes along and says, well, I run a skin clinic. Would it work for me? Of course it would work for you. Let's bring you in. You know, we're not doing a campaign for skin clinics right now, but if you see the value, of course, come through. We're going to be campaigning for skin clinics next. So come on board. So when you think about a business that grows, it's running a series of campaigns. Nike ran a very focused campaign when they were blue ribbon sports around jogging. They had a million people buy a book called Jogging by Bill Bowerman, who was the co-founder, and a million people discovered jogging for the first time in America, and jogging took off as a thing. And Blue Ribbon Sports, which is now Nike, ran their whole campaign around being a jogging shoe, which didn't exist. It was a new category. So that was the big campaign that launched them. But if we look at where they are today, they have a Serena Williams campaign for women's tennis. They have a campaign for basketball with multiple different basketball players. So they are campaigning in multiple different areas. They even have skate shoes with different skateboarding superstars. So they've got probably hundreds of campaigns running at any given time. So a big business is a business that has multiple campaigns. And if you think about like a small engine has like one or two cylinders and then a big engine's got 12 cylinders. So think about a small business as one or two campaigns and a bigger business is 12 campaigns that are just running, firing all at once. That is one of the most powerful languages I've heard about using the niche concept without creating any of the friction that usually comes with niching down. And so I do want to thank you for that because I want to use that more often. I think for anybody listening, this might be one of the most liberating statements when it comes to understanding how to start your business in a way of not feeling like you're excluding anyone. And words are powerful. Uh, And so I definitely appreciate that. And Daniel, like, You've written so many books. You advocate for entrepreneurs. You've repeated your success in multiple industries as well. Just having a chat with you has been fantastic. I feel like I want to have a lot more of these conversations with you, which I'm pretty sure will happen in the near future. But for now, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with this. There's so much that I've personally taken away that I want to apply in my business, in my client's business. And one of the things I do ask anybody that does come on the show, and I have to ask you as well, you are on the Selling with Love podcast. We started with love and selling. So what does selling with love mean to Daniel? So for me, it's a complex relationship. It's, I think a great salesperson loves the customers that they work with and they want what's best for them and that they genuinely want to improve the customer's life. They want to create a transformation for that customer that the customer will look back and say, I appreciate that. I thank, thank you for that. The best salespeople I've ever worked with, they really take pride in the fact that it was them who tipped the balance, that fast forward a year or two and that that person comes back and said, I got so much value from this transformation and I wouldn't have done it had you not given me your time and you know your focus, your energy and taken the time to explain it to me. And because of you, I went ahead and now I got this great transformation. And there's that kind of pride that you take in, I positively impacted their life. The beauty of being a salesperson is that you really can have a profound impact on somebody's life with high leverage, very high leverage. So just by having that one conversation where you give them the information that they need to make a decision and go ahead, 
the thing that they go ahead with in many cases will have a profound impact on their life and will actually take them in a direction and all of those sorts of things. So the leverage point is incredible that you can potentially change three, four, five people's lives in a day. So what does selling with love mean? Selling with love means understanding the responsibility of that, understanding that you have a responsibility as an effective salesperson to choose something that is a positive impact on the world and positive impact on your customer and your client, that you recognize that you have a superpower and with that power comes responsibility, so Spider-Man might say, and it's that profound sense of I'm exceptionally good at what I do or I'm going to become exceptionally good at what I do I want to do that in a way that people come back and thank me two years from now that that they bumped into me and that I had that impact on them. Amen to that. And yes, I wholly agree with that definition of selling with love. It's the greatest joy is having someone come back and you being surprised by how much of an impact you've had in their life because you've only had a friction of a moment with them and you realize how that ripple continues. Daniel, you've definitely had an impact on all the listeners here. So I want to thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, your sharing. It was really, really fun for me. And I know it was really fun for everybody tuning in. What I want to suggest for everybody tuning in, we're going to put some links to Daniel's resources, his books that are available, and he has tons of information that he does share to support people that are on the entrepreneurial journey. And as you know, if you go on a journey of being an entrepreneur, sales is a prerequisite. You're going to be working with salesperson or you're going to be a salesperson. But regardless, if you're going to be going through sales, keep selling with love. Dan, once again, thank you so much. Cheers, Jason. Thanks. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.